if you come across a news story about interactions between humans and dingoes, it's because something has gone wrong. But today, it's a really interesting story about human relationships with dingoes. A new analysis of animal bones from a First Nations midden has given more insight into how close dingoes and humans were before colonisation. Lucas Kungulis is a postdoctoral research fellow at ANU and a co-author on this new study. Lucas, welcome. G'day. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's good a to pleasure. Be here. No, I'm fascinated by dingoes. I think a lot of our listeners are fascinated by dingoes. What do we know about the history of dingoes in Australia overall? Uh, look, we, we know quite a lot. We're, especially within the last five to ten years, we've learned quite a lot. We know that dingoes are a relatively recent arrival to Australia. So in the big scheme of things, um, they didn't really evolve here. Um, and <clears throat> they were brought by people from outside Australia, probably within the last 5,000 years uh, and possibly even within the last four to three and a half thousand years. Um, so they're, they're sort of newcomers to Australia in the big scheme of things, but they seem to have spread throughout Australia uh, quite quickly after they arrived here and so um, you the said, last few thousand years. You said they were brought here. They didn't swim here. They, they came on boats. Yes. So the the shortest sort of water crossing uh, between Australia and, and the nearest um, non-New Guinean sort of portion of Australia is uh, way too long for a dog to make on its own with swimming. So it's almost certain that they were brought on boats. And Lucas, where are we at at the moment with dingo populations in different parts of the country right now? Uh, so on in mainland Australia, dingoes are found in, in pretty much every uh, state and territory. Um you know, I think everyone knows about the long dingo fence, which which cuts off a lot of uh, southeastern Australia from the rest of the continent. And within that area, dingoes are sort of uh, more heavily controlled uh, via lethal control programs. So there's sort of fewer dingoes within that portion of the fence. But a lot of people would be surprised probably to, to learn that dingoes persist in much of New South Wales, much of Victoria and uh, South Australia. So they're still there. Um, a lot of people might think of them as, oh, well, they're just wild dogs or they're hybrids or they're my, you know, my staffy mix escaped or whatever. But the genetic testing shows that uh, wild uh, domestic dogs are extremely rare in, in Australia's wild environments and that, you know, wild uh, or free, free living dogs, so to speak, that we might come across there are almost certainly high high purity to 100% pure dingoes. That is a surprise. As someone who lives in Victoria and, and has never seen a dingo, yeah. <laughs> even right up north, that is fascinating. And I understand, that Lucas, you, you spent some time around living dingoes at one point. Yeah, so earlier in my, in my dingo research uh, career, I spent some time uh, at, a, at a dingo sanctuary, a rescue sanctuary in Western Sydney, um, owned by a friend of mine, owned and run by a friend of mine, uh, and that was a really special experience. He he was sort of just starting off uh, the sanctuary. He had three dingoes, and over the time that I spent there, that number sort of grew as as rescues came in. Um, so it was a real privilege to to sort of spend time with them and uh, to some degree earn their trust and familiarity and and interact with them on a you know on a one to one basis. It was it was really cool. Well, let's talk about the, the dingoes of the past. You're a co-author on this study that looked at some bones uh, from a site in Royal National Park. W tell us a bit about these bones. Yeah, so the, the site is called Karakarang. It's in the Royal National Park um, south of Sydney. It's, it's a rock shelter site which was excavated in the 1960s. And the site is well known for uh, its important lithic technology, stone technology and shell fish hook technology. So a lot has been said about that, but the excavation also produced a very large amount of animal bone uh, 
and in the intervening decades, very, very little was said about that. They sort of produced this list and said, well, we know there's a bit of dingo here, there's a bit of wallaby, uh, a bit of bandicoot, so on and so forth. But no one had actually systematically studied the animal bone. So because we knew that there was dingo there, we the first step was um, we sort of wanted to get direct dates to see how old these dingoes were, direct radiocarbon dates. So we went through the animal bone from Karakarang, uh, and in the course of that, we found the skeletons of several dingoes that had been excavated from the midden, and no one had sort of paid attention to them in the past. So looking at these skeletons, um, we found two things. One is that they're generally, maybe not all of the bones were there, but enough of the skeleton in each case was there to understand that these were originally full uh, bodies that were that were buried. Um, and the second thing was that a, a wide range of uh, individual ages were represented. So we had a few elderly dingoes, very, very quite old dingoes, and we had several young pups that were probably between four and eight weeks of age. Um, the number of dingoes that we found at this site is, is way higher than any other site in the country, uh, and it's because partly due to when it was excavated, the archaeologists who, who dug this site dug up almost the entire site. So there's a really wide coverage of uh, excavated material and that's why there are so there's in excess of, of 20 individual dingoes at this site. Um, perhaps not all of them are burials, but we think the vast majority were. Wow. So you, you've got like several tons of material from this cave shelter where people have been camping for 7,000 years. Uh, most yep. of the material, I understand, was from the last 2,000 years, which That's right. kind of blows your mind, doesn't it, when you compare it to the last 200 or so years of, of European settlement. And you've said that the, the skeletons were whole, mostly whole skeletons and therefore burials. How do you know they weren't being eaten? Is that just that they weren't in pieces? Yeah, that's that's the gist of it. So there's a whole range of other animals represented, you know, through skeletal material in this midden, um, and none of them are represented by complete skeletons or you wouldn't even so much find as two bones that belong together next to each other in the site. So when you have whole skeletons that are more or less articulated at the time of excavation, um, it's a very strong indicator that this uh, sort of the body or the carcass was was placed all, all together in the ground uh, as a burial rather than as scattered elements that have, you know, there's no signs of burning on them, there's no cut marks, they're not broken as the other animal bones that are from food are. So it's a fairly strong indication uh, that they were burials, although unfortunately, again, due to the practices of the time, they weren't particularly recorded as such. They were sort of just dug up in these large shovelfuls, essentially, of, of midden material oh. and sorted out later. Which makes archaeologists of the present shudder a little bit. It sure does. <laughs> Lucas Kungulis is our guest. He's a postdoctoral research fellow at ANU and a co-author on this study looking at these bones that have discovered what we think are dingo burials. And Lucas, you also looked at cases of dingo burials in other parts of the country and you talked to uh, First Nations groups and got some oral history too. What did you find from those sources about people's attitudes to dingoes? So, yeah, as part of the study, we, we looked at all the records for dingo burials uh, throughout Australia, and that means we looked at instances where they've been found through archaeological work, and we also looked at historical accounts of dingo burials uh, as, as they happened, essentially. So <clears throat> there's not too many of these accounts, so all of them are really quite precious uh, for, for this sort of information. And the common thread that we, f that we see in these is when, when a, a companion dingo died, the, the level of um, trauma to, to its family and to the broader community was, was really massive. Um, and so we see 
we have accounts of uh, people wailing and, and sort of tearing at their hair uh, and, and these, these funeral um, proceedings occurring in the same manner that uh, occurred for human burials uh, and human funerals. Um, so this great ceremony, depending on what part of the country it occurred in, the uh, particular rituals were different, but we found that they <clears throat> generally are consistent with what uh, treatment was given to humans. And then in some cases, people would, after the um, burial ceremony or the funeral ceremony, they would uh, pack up their camp and, and leave to another site, which is exactly what happened in a lot of cases after a human had passed away and, and was farewelled. Wow, so very similar farewelling ceremonies. And you mentioned that those uh, accounts are often from historical records, which were written by the colonising people in most cases. What does the oral history from different First Nations groups show about this, Lucas? We're just beginning to scratch the surface of that. Um, so, you know, our, our job as archaeologists is, is to go with community and, and see what we can, how, how, what, what threads of this common story we can put together from the historical records and from First Nations perspective. So I can't say too much on that matter for the time being. Um, what I have learned from, from conversations here and there is that the historical records are, are essentially accurate um, you know, they're told through a different lens, a different perspective. And, you know, although they're, you know, in the literal sense written by a European colonist, uh, a lot of the time they might be related by an Indigenous informant. Um, so I think in, in most cases we're looking at accurate information here, uh, but we'll always look in the future to, to sort of flesh that out with, with a more First Nations uh, perspective that can really bring another level of detail and importance uh, to that sort of information. Well, and I understand that overall this study has uh, expanded our understanding of what was going on in, in the ways people related to these dingoes, hasn't it? it? It's changed our ideas of how old the dingoes were when, when they were living with the communities. Absolutely. I, th I think it's prompted a major rethink. So the Historically, the, the prevailing model for understanding the, the sort of life cycle of, of relationship between a companion digger and Aboriginal people was that uh, people would go to the dens of wild dingoes during their breeding season and take pups uh, at a few weeks of age uh, and then take them back to the camp and raise them as essentially part of the family, part of the community. But once those dingoes reached uh, breeding age, so between one and two years of age, they would generally depart back into the bush. And, and this would be a lot of time encouraged by people. Uh, so they would find mates essentially outside of the community and reside for the rest of their lives in the bush, essentially returning to the wild. So that was the model based on historical observations of, of First Nations societies, mostly within interior Australia. And that's sort of been assumed to be the model for dingo and human relations forever, essentially, you know, from, from when dingoes got here. But so when, we, when we've seen these skeletons from Karakarang that are one, elderly dingoes, they've had several years of breeding age. They're still in the camp. They're still living with people. And then we have the skeletons of young pups that are probably around the right age that they would have been taken from a den, but also perhaps even younger than that. Uh, putting those two together, we think it's very likely that, you know, these, these resident dingoes at Karakarang and other sites potentially in southeastern Australia were breeding within uh, the Aboriginal sort of um, camp environment. And we have perhaps intergenerational continuity between those generations of companion dingoes that was not seen historically in other parts of the continent. So that really is a first. And I think that, re that 
prompts a rethink of how we should be defining that relationship and describing it. It's not this transient thing that's in, uh, you know interrupted between generations, but there's very very likely to be intergenerational continuity there. Wow. So we've got dingoes staying longer than we thought and perhaps breeding and growing old and dying in the community. There was also, I understand, some evidence about the fact they were fed scraps from human meals. How does all that, Lucas, play into the debate that goes on about whether or not Aboriginal people domesticated the dingo per se? That's a great question. I mean, that that's sort of at the centre of this of this debate. So uh, domestication is a, is a funny phrase. It, it sort of there are two camps on how it should be defined. One is you might define as the, the cultural uh, perspective and it's all about the relationship between animals and people. How close is that connection? How long does it last? What does it look like? And then on the other side, there's a biological definition of domestication, which entails the animal has to change, uh, has to change in appearance, has to change in behavior. Uh, ge- there are genetic changes uh, to qualify as domesticated. So I think our study of Karakarang and by extension, a lot of the other dingo burials uh, probably fits the bill for cultural domestication. So we have these enduring relationships between people and individual animals, as well as intergenerational breeding. Essentially, these are animals that are living within an, an anthropogenic environment, a cultural environment. Um, we don't see any evidence that they've return to the wild and then come back or, you know, people have gone and buried wild dingoes. These do seem to be dingoes that have lived their entire lives with people. They're reproducing there. It fits the bill. In terms of domest- uh, biological domestication in the Karakarang burials, um, because they're quite fragmentary, we don't have a, a fantastic base of evidence, but we did detect a small uh, decrease in the size of these dingoes, which is also a common sign of um, the early stages of domestication in the biological sense. Uh, But it's really sort of preliminary information in that regard. We need to look at dingoes from a a whole lot of other sites to sort of build the case for that or test it. It must be a pretty exciting field to work in, Lucas. It's thrilling to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. It's pretty interesting to be able to hear it as, as lay people on the radio too, Lucas. Thank you so much for explaining so clearly what's going on with your science at the moment. Really lovely to chat. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Lucas Kungulis is a postdoctoral research fellow at ANU who's been investigating the origins and history of human relationships with dingoes. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.